You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast, where we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world, mixed with a side of history. Find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at Break the Bell Pod. And most importantly, never stop talking. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All the people that have gone out there against the mainstream media and said, you're going to call us racist, you're going to call us potential Timothy McVeigh's, fuck you. I don't have many rules for how I do this show that you listen to every Monday and Thursday. Uh, They're usually like, don't do it when you're half asleep. Don't do it if you don't really have a plan. Don't do it if you're going to record out of anger. If you're going to record in a state of uncontrollable passion and rage. Well, I'm breaking that rule tonight. No, we are not talking about the election. We are not talking about one man. We are not talking about one party. We are not talking about anything but this. It's a war for freedom on the internet. I've been saying it for five fucking years. And now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to understand it. Now it's so obvious. Because first they came for the fringe, then they went to the taboo, then they went to the scandalous, then they went to the unlikable, then they went to the inconvenient, and now they're going after you. And it's more real than it's ever been. It's like that Phil Collins song, it's coming, you feel it in the air tonight. It was only a matter of time. You, you think that it wouldn't have mattered, so soon in such a way but thousands if not millions because we'll probably never know the number of people across Facebook, Twitter have just randomly lost access to their account. Groups on Facebook are no longer allowed to disapprove or approve content. People are no longer allowed to go ahead and submit ads for certain content. You thought it was Alex Jones? No, they went after Jason Stapleton of Wealth, Power and Influence. Jason Stapleton's a finance guy. He rarely really talks about partisan politics. In fact, he attacks everybody. But a month ago, Jason Stapleton could not access the Twitter ad network. Well, first, let's get to this. Facebook wouldn't allow him, and then Twitter completely got rid of him. 
And where is Jason now? Sitting at more than 50,000 followers on Parler. His number one platform as of November 7th. Is it starting to become more clear? If they can censor a president, if they can censor grandma, they can censor you. This is not an issue of the left or the right. This is an issue of freedom versus tyranny. And it does not have to come from the government. It can come from those with such immense power, essentially a digital rogue nation, that we are at the point where we are now. God, I feel so good I left the media when I did. Because now I'm on the front lines, not just through this show, but with the other amazing men and women at Parlor. But we're not here to talk about that either. We're here to talk about a trend, because you see, history didn't just start yesterday. It didn't just start four years ago. Growing up as a child, a teenager, in the post-9-11 generation, we used to be told by those wiser than us that history didn't just start on 2000, in 2001. A lot happened before that. And our topic today is simple. It's about the journalists themselves, the many thousands out there, the many hundreds of thousands, if not maybe millions, in the United States who really just don't do their jobs. And this is the closest I'm going to get to a tell-all right now because the names are not important and I don't want you to get distracted. What I want to do is I want to talk about an event. It was an event that I attended in twenty in January of 2019. It was LibertyCon, back when you could actually go and attend events. And I was a columnist for a magazine called And, And Magazine. And at the time, I was still doing uh, freelance commentary journalism. I would actually go out. And yes, I would tell you my opinion of something, but I would try to do as much of my homework as possible. You see, that's something that really doesn't exist because, you see, a lot of reporters want to be pundits, and a lot of pundits think they're reporters. I told you the facts, and I told you my opinion, and I hoped that I did a good enough job by at least putting forth the effort to go somewhere and actually witness something and understand something and investigate something. So hopefully you would at least respect me in that sense. This was... Uh, several weeks after the CEO of Google testified before the Senate and essentially was grilled over potential contracts with China. That's right, the CCP. Didn't think you were going to be hearing that on this show, huh? You didn't think that maybe I would get into the waters of this, but let's really think about this for a moment. It didn't just start with Trump. It didn't just start with covid but let's just get to it. I'm going to go ahead and actually link to this article that I'm going to read to you in the show notes of this episode so you can see it itself. I'm also going to link to, an, to two shows. One was the Brian Nichols show, which I recorded about uh, three to four months before I published this article. And then I'm going to link to another episode of The System is Down by my friend Dan Smots, where I actually went into further detail about Project Dragonfly. But this was basically the start of what I realized was a dangerous syndicate of big tech and big government. And often people throw the term globalists around, but what this really should be called is technocratic elitism. That's an actual political science term, technocrats, elitism, technocratic elitism. Because what happened was 
the CEO of Google essentially lied before Congress about not whether or not Project Dragonfly was real, but what the intentions were. Because what happens is with these technocrats, they go ahead and say things like, well, we want the conversation or we want the, uh, the, com- the debate to happen. We want all this stuff. And it's nothing more than a talk. It's nothing more than an idea. What's wrong with that idea? Are you criminalizing free speech? No. But when you're getting into serious talks and you're telling your engineers and developers to get into a potentially dark web of involvement with one of the most oppressive governments on earth, that that should make people a little bit curious. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read to you this article I published and I'm going to go ahead and uh, interject throughout, but you will go ahead and get this and the two episodes, which I think are required listening for this episode. The article published by Remsa W. Martin is January 22nd, 2019, exclusive Google rep plays coy about future of Project Dragonfly. You can't hide what we already know. On January 19th, 2019, Google employee Max Pappas, manager of Google's external outreach and public policy partnerships, gave a speech at LibertyCon 2019 titled, Why Permissionless Innovation Needs to be Defended, in a crowd of libertarian students and other attendees in order to paint Google as a defender and advocate for access to the beneficial world of opportunity the Internet provides. After the 25-minute speech... Papa's moved to another room in the Marriott Marquis Hotel to take questions from those who attended his talk and wanted to expand the conversation. Just a day prior, according to reporter Ryan Gallagher at The Intercept, hardly a right-wing bastion of journalism, especially with what recently happened with the ousting of Glenn Greenwald, Um, Quote, a coalition of Chinese, Tibetan, Uyghur, and human rights groups organized demonstrations outside Google's offices in the U.S., U.K., Canada, India, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, Sweden, Switzerland, and Denmark. This international series of protests was sparked by Google's involvement in the Chinese government with the Chinese government regarding a secret program designated Project Dragonfly. Gallagher continued stating that, that quote, Google designed the Chinese search engine, codenamed Dragonfly, to blacklist information about human rights, democracy, religion, and peaceful protests in accordance with strict rules on censorship in China that are enforced by the country's authoritarian Chinese Communist Party, end quote. After months of continued investigations by journalists and protests from minority from, from a minority of higher-up Google employees, on December 17, 2018, Google, af- quote, effectively ended, end quote, development of Project Dragonfly, not because of public outcry, but because of a lack of resources, according to Google CEO Sundar Pichai. The news became public during Pichai's appearance before a congressional committee. So I was wrong earlier before I read it. It was congressional. Um... Uh, in December 2018, stating that while Project Dragonfly had been canceled right now, he would not go on record to rule out the similar projects between Google and other authoritarian governments would be off the table if it meant access to newer markets. Um, He, on several occasions prior to the December hearing, issued statements regarding Project Dragonfly, among them being that we're not close to launching search in China. As one anonymous source for The Intercept put it, his statements were bullshit. 
While he tried to lower tensions between Google, the U.S. government, and concerned users, Gallagher, while Pachai tried to do that, uh, Gallagher further explained that Google employees who worked on Dragonfly previously told The Intercept that companies, that company executives brushed aside human rights concerns during the development of the search engine and related smartphone apps. Since the exposure of Project Dragonfly, Google has instituted new ethics courses for employees, but outside observers see this as a way to cover up their true intentions. During Papa's Q&A session after his speech, I asked him publicly whether Google reflected on the backlash they received as a result of the exposure of Project Dragonfly. What are you talking about? Papa's replied. I elaborated on my question asking how a company that prides itself on free enterprise and human advancement could in good conscience work to help the communist government of China develop a tool to censor an individual's access to information even more than it currently than it is currently in China. Upon asking who my sources regarding Project Dragonfly were, I cited evidence provided by the Intercept, the Media Research Center and statements issued by Senator Mark Warner and Sunder Pachai. And by the way, Mark Warner is a Democrat from Virginia. The Intercept, left-leaning source. Media Research Center, center-right source. Pappas replied to my answer, saying that the information provided by the sources I referred to were, quote, false and not factual. When I asked Pappas to clarify what specifically I said had happened, I said happened to be incorrect. He stated that he couldn't properly refute any of the claims by Gallagher or others, and that in terms of his knowledge of Project Dragonfly, I know as much as you know. A 2018 report from Breitbart shows that Pappas' avoidance of the topic is systemic within Google, as employees and representatives are trying everything they can in order to keep it as tight-lipped as possible and hope that this topic quietly goes away. I worked very hard on that, and it almost got no traffic, especially when it was shared by many other reporters, columnists, and activists, libertarian, conservative, and liberal. I'm not mad that it didn't get traffic. I'm mad that I was not actually the only person there writing a story. In fact, there were many stories written at LibertyCon, you know, about the future of the liberty movement, about is Bill Weld going to run for president, and what's Justin Amash's new haircut and shit. Nobody wanted to go ask questions to Facebook. It happened to be a sponsor there. Google was a sponsor, too. That's how you get the big main event stage panels. That's how you get to go ahead and reserve a room for Q&A. You paid a lot of money. You pay a lot of money. Liberty Memes was there. Do you know who Liberty Memes are? Liberty Memes was a page on Facebook that would post funny libertarian memes constantly taken out. They had a small room. They had a small room. And nobody really wrote stories about them until weeks after because it was trendy. But nobody, none of the many reporters from big and small outlets who attended. None of them ever wrote anything about Facebook. In fact, you probably wouldn't have known Facebook and Google were there unless you saw the event program. It's funny how that works. I saw people, friends of mine who I attended college with, who I had covered other stories with, who I had worked with, they were there. 
They were there drinking and chatting and networking. It seemed like I was one of the few people there working. In fact, when I went to Papa's Q&A after that, with my recorder and my notepad in hand, I had people walk me out of there afterwards. Well, they didn't walk me out, but they followed me out, and they began to yell at me. Don't you know what good Google does for the world? How dare you treat them like that? Who do you think you are? Well, you see, this is, this is funny because um, reporting works both ways. You ask hard questions and you expect real answers. And uh, it seems people only like reporters who ask hard questions when, you're asking, when they're being asked to people you don't like. If I had students get mad at me, I had uh, businessmen get mad at me. I work with Google. How dare you say that? Well, I'm sorry that you're working with people who align themselves with the most totalitarian regime currently in the world right now. I'm not taking back anything, and I'm writing the fucking story. I had a friend come over to me. He was like, Remso, what ruckus are you doing? And I told him, this just happened. You know this is happening. Why weren't you there? And he laughed, and he gave me a pat on the back, and he said, good luck with all of that. It's easy when you get the media pass, and you get to go to all the areas, and take your selfies of all the people, and you get to say hashtag journalist, and you're... Instagram photo, it's hard to actually go ahead and do the work. Because often that's the problem with many journalists, as I learned during my time in media. There, there's a joke, you see, um, and it can go anyway, depending on where you start. But for me, I was told when I was leaving my time as a political consultant that if, if politics doesn't work out, go get a job in media. And if media doesn't work out, organized crime is still available. It's the vicious circle. I think lobbying should be an organized crime while you're there, depending on who you're lobbying for. Um, but that's just it. You see, a lot of people went, went to the smokescreen. The, the women's march was happening that day. You know, the, the people for the pink pussy hats and, uh, you know, People wanted to go get that and get their classic own lib video. So that was happening a mile up the road. Um, you had ever, all, the, all these other people there with their media passes. I wonder what the, what the hell they actually do. They, they don't actually really do much. I didn't see really anybody there. I saw my friend, my good friend Ford Fisher. He's always with his camera. I know that he probably did something. But uh, I was the only one there for the Google panel. I knew exactly why I was there. But what you see then is what you see now. I think it was George Orwell that said it best. He said, if you're not actually investigating and reporting the facts, everything else you're just doing is PR. And that's ultimately what we're seeing through the media right now. It's, it's so sad that libertarians, small L and big L across the country laud the media. Let's talk about the Joe Jorgensen campaign in this. The same complaints that we got probably four years ago of Gary Johnson. Oh, go ahead and contact the media. Let the media know. If they just know about us, they'll want to write a story because you and your dozen friends will want to write about it. Did they get any mainstream attention from Fox, CNN, MSNBC? I don't think I saw Joe anywhere. I hear rumors, and they're just rumors, but I feel confident enough in saying it that Jorgensen was offered a potential interview with Joe Rogan. Would have been big, right? Probably would have been bigger than CNN and Fox combined. But for some reason, it didn't work out. 
That's like Christ coming down on a freaking golden chariot and saying, I could take you away from this right now. And you're just like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. If it's false, then shame on me. But I'm hearing it from good sources. I only say it's a rumor because I didn't see emails. I didn't see texts. So I can't come to you as fact. But I can ask, would it surprise you if it were the case? The thing is, the media knew about Joe and Spike. The media just doesn't care. You see, you can get all these small local newspapers, but those are people that were fighting for news because they needed to pay the bills because COVID and everything else and riots was taking up all the stories of the year. So, of course, your small little Buffalo newspaper is going to go ahead and talk about it. At least they did, whether it was because they genuinely cared or out of desperation is a whole other thing. But the libertarians now saying, trust the media, trust, trust the news networks. You, you didn't trust them when it was inconvenient for you when they attacked Ron Paul. You, you didn't like them when they went after Gary Johnson because of the Aleppo moment. You don't trust them when it comes to your polling, but you trust them to talk about elections. You go ahead and say the government shouldn't do this and these guys can get away with this because they're a private company. But you look at the FDA, for example. You look at Monsanto. It's not a secret. You can go online and dare I say, you can Google this. The vicious circle between people that go from these large pharmaceutical and large, you know, big, big, big agricultural companies that are creating all the GMOs and stuff you're scared about. And then they go and they go to the FDA and they, they write all this new regulation and they pack it into bills with legislators and then they get out and they go right back to lobbying for them. You don't think the same works with media? I mean, do you? Where do you think George Stephanopoulos came from? He came from the Clinton administration. Where do you think Anderson Cooper came from? Anderson Cooper came from the CIA. These aren't conspiracies. You can go ahead and go, go search that yourself. Go to your favorite source for news. And they've probably mentioned it at least at one point in their lives. But that's the thing about the media. I'm here to tell you something about fake news. Fake news is not always lies. Fake news is not always just distortions. Fake news can be omissions. Why are we watching 20 minutes of cat videos and car chases and celebrity gossip when there's real stuff going on in the world? I don't like The Intercept right now, personally, but that does not discount the work that The Intercept does. Alan Bakari at Breitbart's doing some of the best work on this right now. You might not like Breitbart, but I'm pretty sure you protect, I'm sorry, you, you respect him to a degree. To have people I know who are, who are commentators and pundits and reporters and investigative journalists going for the soft pieces, attacking the people they want to attack. Half of them have actually never put in the work of being any of the things they want to. We've got so many over-credentialized young people with good vocabularies that talk about stuff that they have no idea about. What does a 21-year-old know about foreign policy? 
I knew quite a bit, but I wouldn't have even wanted to go on TV. Yet we see that, and they look nice, and they sound nice, and they bring a few facts because they're hoping that you're more ignorant than they are on these things. People who never had jobs. You know, journalism and reporting actually used to be a blue-collar job. It wasn't until, you know, starting off writing for your local newspaper for a website was a gateway to eventual, eventually cable television or radio that it just became a method of trying to instill fame, get the blue check mark, publish a book, which are all fine things. But you used to have to do the work. You know, there, there's there's a joke about National Review. Um, na, 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 uh, uh, what what is it? I'm trying to remember it. I do this live. I I should have I should have remembered this one. Oh, losing is having your enemy teach your child being a conservative, and then writing for National Review an article asking how did we lose the culture war. <laughs> I like National Review, but that's kind of funny if you think about it. So many people wondering. They know the answer. They do. But don't call out the teachers. I was at an event in uh, in July 2019, July, August. It was right around the time that I was uh, starting at the Washington Times as their social media coordinator. And I was at an event, and there was... Um, there, I think his name was John Whitback, former chairman of the Republican Party of Virginia. He was running for uh, some type of supervisor position in Loudoun County, Virginia. And uh, I was there hawking one of my books. I, I think it was my first book, Stay Away from Libertarians. And, uh, you know, very raucous, conservative crowd, even in a more moderate area outside of northern Virginia. And somebody's like, you know, you're you're young and all this stuff. How do we get How do we get our kids involved? And I'm like, well, the first thing you could do is pull them out of schools. You would have thought that I kicked a baby. People look around shocked and others, you know, were, were clapping. And I'm like, why would you let people who don't care about your children, who think that you don't have the right to be a parent, stay with your child eight hours a day, five days a week? That's freaking stupid. And whip back, the politician starts getting, getting his hackles up. Starts getting all mad. Goes around asking people, can you hear that? We need teachers. Teachers are our community. Despite the fact that all his teachers endorse his opponent. Teachers are his community. Because he'd rather have them not pay attention to him and vote against him than pay attention to him and attack him and still vote against him. He doesn't want to be the guy that pisses off maybe one or two conservatives that might have a very high opinion of public education teachers, an opinion that I really don't have anymore. It's not high at all. It's very non-existent. Don't let your enemies teach your children. Goes around, does a quick live stream. I want to let people know that I support the teachers. Well, guess what? Several months come by. His election comes by. Doesn't win. I go back a year later for the second book. I look around. I'm like, where's, where, where, where's, where's John? I want to know if the teachers came out for him. But no. It's just, it's just not how it is. People so blinded by their own obsessions and fascinations and ambitions that they ignore the truth in front of them because it's inconvenient. That they'll lie with their enemy 
to spite the truth. Maybe I've done that in my life. It's not even a maybe. I have. I admit it. Far from perfect. I did that. I, uh, I stopped posting things in around 2017 that were negative about Ed Gillespie. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm on paper for, uh, for the Liberty Champion, a student newspaper that uh, published a story about me when I came to go speak at a student group at Liberty's campus. I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm voting for Ed. I want Ed to win. The truth is I was trying to get a job for either the Gillespie campaign at the time or I was trying to get a job with the super PAC. And it's hard to do that when you're attacking the person. I needed a job, and I wanted to be a political consultant. And I had even quit the Libertarian Party to try and be as much of a diehard Republican as possible to try and secure that. It didn't go through. I'm glad it didn't. I feel shameful for acting that way. I changed my act fact when I realized, why would I do this for people that don't like me? Why would I do this for people I don't believe in? Yeah, I might, I might get a job out of this, but where's my dignity? That's why when I left politics and I jumped into reporting and journalism, I actually put in the work. I was, I'd written blogs, I'd written commentary, op-eds, done shows at the time. I could never be an objective reporter. People, you know, once you can go from reporting to commentary, but you cannot go from commentary to reporting. So I tried to be a commentary journalist. If I'm going to talk about something, I might as well have some experience. I went to Moms Demand Action rallies. I went to protests with Indivisible Charlottesville. I went and spoke with politicians, and I asked them hard questions, Republicans and Democrats. Just ask Corey Stewart. I went to events. I even wrote another piece about LibertyCon, Fear and Loathing at LibertyCon. Let me go ahead and bring that up. This is actually a really good example. I did not think of this earlier. Let me see. I typed in Ant Magazine and Pizza came up. I, I miss Ant Pizza. I have not had Ant Pizza in a while. Let me see. Oh, I wrote three about it as I pull it up. I even wrote one about Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang shared that. Andrew Yang follows me on Facebook. I like Andrew Yang. I'll, you'll never hear me say anything negative about Andrew Yang. But here's the piece. I went on. This was, I'm pretty sure this may have been the first time I had been on uh, We Are Libertarians. I was on a on Chris's show when I spoke about it. But I think this also speaks to not just journalists, but this speaks about people. Fear and Loathing at LibertyCon 2019 by Remsa W. Martinez, published January 21st, 2019. Okay, here it is. A look at the state of the libertarian movement. Six years ago, I woke up in a roach-infested motel room in Nashville, Tennessee, on a large chair next to the door, stained with the remnants of food, drinks, and other things. A bunch of us had shared a cost of a motel room. It wasn't the type of tripification you brag about to your friends. We were troopers, however, sleeping what I only remember us nicknaming the Dead Hooker Inn the night before a regional Students for Liberty conference. The post-Ron Paul libertarian moment was a kindling of fire waiting to spread, as I discuss in my book, Stay Away from the Libertarians. 
We had low expectations based on the small size of our movement. Simply put, libertarians aren't used to nice things or nice outcomes, but we march on with a smile. The conference was small. The turnout consisted of students dressed in drag, punk rockers with enough piercings to make a metal detector malfunction, and bowtie-flashing econ nerds carrying copies of Murray Rothbard's Man's State and Economy. We were a ragged, eclectic bunch, but we were happy to have found like-minded people interested in the philosophy that converged culture and politics. To most of society, we appeared fringe and renegade. Flash forward today... I can walk into any crowd anywhere in America, and a majority will consider libertarian to be a household word, and I say that with a small l. What they think about libertarians is a whole other question entirely. Arriving in D.C. via Uber on January 19th, I looked around the streets of the most powerful city in the world that was now the epicenter of the longest federal shutdown in U.S. history. After I was dropped off at the Marriott Marquis on Massachusetts Avenue, I passed by men and women wearing those revolting knitted pink pussy hats, holding signs that said, hands off my vagina, as they walked to the 2019 March for Women a few miles away. It was funny as I realized that the day before, the crowd was so completely different at the March for Life. But only in America can you have a crowd of pro-life demonstrators march in the streets one day and have a crowd of pro-abortion marchers take to the streets the next in peace. Well, as I'm reading this, 2019 just sounds like a completely different fucking world. (laughs) Um, We might be a politically divided nation with an identity complex, but at least protesters such as those generally stay within the time frame that their permits grant them. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a completely different world. (laughs) Liberty Con, formerly known as the International Students for Liberty Conference, when I was when I was in Students for Liberty, we had to say ISFLC, 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 ISFLC. Oh, I could still do it. ISFLC was embarking on its final day of lectures, panels, and other breakout sessions before the event officially concluded that night. The student movement I had seen blossom when I was in college, when I was a college student, was more professionally operated and much more publicized than ever before. In fact, the name changed from ISFLC to LibertyCon in 2018, primarily because it transcended libertarian student activism and became in many ways a libertarian version of CPAC. Freedom Fest in Las Vegas might be the top contender for that comparison, but all Freedom Fest attendees know that the Vegas event is more of a party and and less of an academic convention. When I was a student, we were in a weird sort of libertarian renaissance of sorts as we anticipated big policy and cultural changes headed towards the 2016 election. Our conventions, rallies, and meetups were like Woodstock if you replaced Jimi Hendrix with Milton Friedman. Our heroes such as Rand Paul and John Stossel were mainstream voices hitting the headlines and leading the conversation. We were like pirate ra- we were like the pirate radio of political science, breaking the boundaries of the left-right political lines by academia and the professional partisan cartels while picking up new allies along the way to a better tomorrow. 2016 changed all that, and without rehashing the traumatic memory of a nation that barely kept its act together, as we were facing an election with the two most universally dislikable candidates in American history, wow, this is such a pre-COVID article, I'm sorry, bear with me, Um, The libertarian moment we thought would succeed with the Ron Paul revolution looked less like a competitive show dog and more like roadkill. Yes, 
More people knew who libertarians were, and more people may have identified as libertarians, but apart from gay marriage and legal pot in some states, our metaphorical trophy case was pretty damn empty and demoralizing. Three years later, the libertarian scene seems like it did back when I was a student. As I picked up my press badge, I spoke to some of the event staff, asking how the turnout looked in terms of attendance. Lowest we've ever seen as far as LibertyCon is concerned, one staffer told me. It was noticeable. Even at past venues, the rooms used to be so filled to the capacity of students. This year, it was difficult to get even the smallest rooms halfway full for speakers and panels. I carried some old friends at a table who were one of the sponsors, asking them what they thought of the conference only confirmed my suspicions. When it was ISFLC, it was pretty much all party, all students. Now the name change may have brought some other changes, but the vibe is no party, some students. One of them told me before turning to an older couple, probably in their 60s, who walked by the table to grab some pens and stickers. A student from the University of Arizona overheard our conversation. There are more people receiving hairlines this year than ever before, he said, informing me that he had been coming regularly since 2013. I attended most of the panels I could get I could throughout the evening. Topics range from drug policy, universal basic income, to online censorship and the need for Islamic enlightenment. While the libertarian community might be known for infighting, at least in public, there used to be a degree of professional respect. Professional implying that people might accuse each other of being Satan online, but at least in, per, uh, in person, in public, no one would ever call each other out. During one panel regarding the tenets of liberty, a speaker from the Cato Institute suggested it was wrong for the Mises Institute to be allowed to come and table at the convention because of past statements regarding some inside baseball dispute where one person called another a mean name and everyone got angry. It was rather uncalled for and frankly made the attendees a little uncomfortable, making one child have to choose between parents and a divorce. At a session with Reason Magazine editor Nick Gillespie discussing the fight for free speech on college campuses, he spent more time attacking and insulting the conservative student organization Turning Point USA for enabling identity politics and being easily offended, never once mentioning the violent group known as Antifa, who built a volatile reputation for shutting down right-wing speechers and setting fire places on fire. Uh, wow, that was some foreshadowing, wasn't it? Um, when it was over, I walked near a crowd of students who were in the room with me previously. I'm a Turning Point member. I don't know if Gillespie understands how many other students here happen to be, one student said to the group who nodded their heads in agreement. The big elephant in the room during the convention, however, wasn't the subtle jabs speakers were taking at each other or the fact you had seemed uh, or the fact what seemed more more attendees who were part of the AARP than Students for Liberty, it was the presence of former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, the 2016 LP pick, who was largely criticized for running what seemed to be a counter to his running mate, the Libertarian presidential nominee, former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson. Throughout 2018, Governor Weld made the rounds by attending as many Libertarian Party state conventions as he could, shaking hands, taking photos, and hobnobbing with those who would be delegates to the 2020 LP convention. Since 2017, speculation as to whether Weld would run for the Libertarian nomination for president has been up in the air. Take it for what it's worth, but an old politician from another era doesn't stump for a third party that is rather ambivalent towards him, at best, unless he is trying to butter them up to ask for something. 
during the handful of, pro- of panels Weld participated in, ranging in drug reform to the future of the LP, he seemed bored as if he were there just to remind people he was still around while moderators such as Reason's Matt Welch kept serving him up softball questions. Even when Weld wasn't on stage, his posse was parading him around so he could get as much face time as possible. While one attendee was quick to call Weld the Libertarian Party's Hillary Clinton, I saw him as more the LP's Jeb Bush, low energy, flirting with a nomination he was clearly already gunning for because he feels entitled to it, hoping that when he's done speaking, that he doesn't have to ask for people to clap for him. The convention was, all in all, a success thanks to the sponsors that made it happen and the Students for Liberty staff making sure everything was going according to plan and everyone was happy. However, the general vibe of the crowd wasn't necessarily energetic. Energetic optimism and joy usually felt by conventions prior. This year, everyone seemed exhausted as if they were just there to check it off the block and to gain something from attending. There are some new folks, like expected, but many of the same people I usually see at this convention and other libertarian events said uh, Libertarian Party of Virginia Chairman Bo Brown. It was definitely a smaller crowd, but we did just come out of a midterm election, and no one is very excited for 2020. Oh, wait until you see 2020. (laughs) So it makes sense that most people who would typically come probably decide to stay home this year and perhaps come next year. Oh, man. FYI, LibertyCon 2020 was canceled. Um, I'll skip that part. Caleb Franz, executive director and founder of the Maliberty Initiative, also shared Brown's sentiments. Something to understand, at least in terms of the crowd size, is that Students for Liberty's global conference presence is expanding in Europe and South America, where it has a big part to do with it. If there was a local convention or conference they can attend, they might not feel like they need to travel all the way to D.C. It's difficult to keep the energy going 24-7, and sometimes people just need a breather. When asked about his opinion on where the libertarian movement currently stands... Franz continued stating, it's hard to find where the movement is going because that is a question everyone is asking, where the direction is. Franz is right. In a national conversation owned by hardline nationalists and open borders globalists, libertarians seem to be in the position they have been historically shut out. In past several years, libertarians celebrated massive drug reform laws, the legal acknowledgement of gay marriage, and the growing population accepting of a Ron Paul-style non-interventionist foreign policy. Three years after the Trump revolution, where is the next fight for libertarians? We've won some and lost some, but now everyone who is active seems tired, used, confused, and, and you know, worrying about the path ahead. In no way was the exhausted mood of the convention on account of the fantastic staff who put on and managed the whole show, nor was it the sponsors who contributed in their own ways. The collective mindset was, at the end of the day, a reflection of our current political and cultural state of affairs. People are fearful about what is to come in 2020. Yeah, you should. Um, following the gut-wrenching saga of what we all witnessed in 2016. Hurt people who are loathsome towards the hyper-polarized partisan politics and the damage it has caused friendships, families, and other relationships. When you take a step back, the libertarian community at the end of the day feels the same way as the rest of the country, left, right, and everybody in the quiet and confused middle. While every movement seems sees highs and lows, the libertarian movement is at least still alive and despite setbacks, looks here to stay. Uh, this is the first time, probably since that article came out, I've read it. And I am curious how many of us called each other sellouts how many of us 
avoided things or refused to do other things because we wanted that chance. How many of us tried to make dark alliances for the sake of personal or career progression? This isn't the time to make friends of people you know hate you. AOC wants a list. Evan McMullen, a person who fooled me into voting for him in 2016, wants a list. Jennifer Rubin wants a list. You know what Google thinks about you. You know what Zuckerberg thinks about you. You know what Dorsey thinks about you. You know what Bill Weld thinks of you. You know what they think of you. I'm not asking you to do anything, but really reconsider this. Who's going to defend you when you lose your right to speech? Who's going to defend you when forces far heavier and stronger and more connected from you begin attacking you? Because if you really think about it, it's not going to be the people whose parties you want to get invited to when we start partying again. Think hard, think fast, think on these things. But remember this, truth remains. The fight continues. I'm Remso W. Martinez. Thank you so much. It's been a passionate episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Good night. Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.